Hi there and welcome to Plant CEO. In today's episode, I'd like to welcome Jim Mellon, the chairman of Burnbray Group. And if it's your first time visiting this show, I interview leaders from the plant-based industry. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Hi, Anna. Very, very well. I hope you're well too. I'm doing great, thank you. You've just arrived in Berlin, is that right? Yeah, I'm here yeah. on business. I've got a couple of days here and then uh, back to the UK. Um, so uh, I have an apartment here in Berlin, which is pretty empty at the moment because we're selling it. And uh, so it's uh, sort of camping living, basically. Very nice. Or glamping in some ways. Well, it's not, not very luxurious at the moment. There's, <laughs> there's a couple of chairs and that's about it. So Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So we're going to talk about a few topics today. So it's great to have you on the show. Um, but let's start with, have you got any ambitions at the moment to basically build your own rocket and fly to space like Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos? Oh, absolutely not. Um, I, I don't understand how these guys can be committed environmentalists and burn so much fuel to take themselves. It's not even space, really. It's just a sort of, you know, a bird's eye view of the world for three minutes. Um, but, um, you know, I guess people with too much money and, uh, uh, you know, unlimited ambition and huge egos do that sort of thing, but I have no such ambition. Awesome. That's good to hear. I mean, there's so many projects they could be doing with that money here on earth. And, but I am for the advancement in terms of like the technology in general. And I don't know if you've heard of a company called LifeShip. It's a San Francisco based company. And what they actually do is take your DNA and then they um, actually send it to the moon um, in some amber, kind of like Jurassic Park. And they leave it there. Hopefully one day the, the next species will find it and do something with your DNA. What, what do you think about that? Oh, I think it, that, that sounds um, interesting, uh, but I, I agree with you. I think the technology needs to be advanced. And I think that, you know, non-human activity in space, the fact that we're able to talk today, even though my internet connection is not great, is due to satellite technology, which is obviously space related. Um, but I just think the egomaniacal sort of, um, you know, as I said earlier, burning of massive amounts of uh, carbon to get yourself a little bit into space is... Well, it's actually disgraceful. It's hypocritical and disgraceful. Yeah. Sorry, sure. Tobias. <laughs> no problem. So also, I was just thinking that, you know, in your early investment career, when you were in Silicon Valley, you were actually on a flight in Palm Springs with Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. And they were basically sitting in front of you and you weren't quite confident at the time to go up and speak to them. But now that you are a lot more confident and say, if you could go back in time, and knowing what you know about the world today, what would you actually say to them? Well, I mean, it's a very difficult one to, to, to answer, Anand, because um, first of all, we were actually leaving Palm Springs. I'd heard them both speak at this conference. And then it's a very intriguing question. I guess what I try and do is ask them out for a drink, because I find that breaking down barriers with people and chatting to them suggested that, you know, we all went out and had a a jar in San Francisco. I don't know if they would have they would have accepted or not, but that would be my tactic. Yeah, I guess if if there was drinks on the plane, you could always uh, rock up, right, and say, "Hey, how <laughs> you doing? Let's well, have some uh, gin and tonic or something." Yeah, that would have that might, might have worked, except it was only a thirty minute flight, so I think it was more or less you went up and you went straight down. And uh, we were True. definitely all in economy class, so I don't know if they would have they would have been quite the same. But it's quite interesting because I don't think those guys. You know, they didn't get along, as you'd know. And uh, it was really intriguing to have them both in the 
seats in front of me. Um, but also, it's probably one of the very few occasions before they started going on their own private jets and, and uh, went on public transport, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to see them chatting, even though they were fierce uh, competitors at the time, uh, to some degree. Yeah, but you may remember that uh, Apple got into trouble and Microsoft bought 10% of Apple. Uh, I think it was 10% and basically rescued it because they, they had to have a competitor. They couldn't have no competitors for antitrust rules and all that sort of stuff. And uh, Apple made an absolute fortune on the, sorry, um, uh, Microsoft made an absolute fortune on the, um, the Apple shares. And here today, You've got both of them. I think one is the largest company by market cap. And I'm not sure if Microsoft isn't the third largest in the world after Amazon, but they're both, you know, unbelievably successful. But only one of them, one of the founders is alive. Yeah, it's unfortunate that. And um, yeah, it was very sad uh, when Steve Jobs died. And, you know, the other thing is that he was also vegetarian, which was quite commendable and um, at the time. And I, I really appreciate that he was doing that. And yeah, so it would be great to talk about your own journey to remove meat from your own diet. Can you exactly recall what the trigger point for you was? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and I, I've been thinking about it overnight. The answer is there's been no Damascene moment, but I've always been a huge animal lover. And ever since um, I had my own money, I've had dogs and uh, my partner and I, we, we now have five dogs, Amazing. <laughs> which is quite a handful. But apart from one of them, they're quite big dogs. And we rescue dogs. Um, so we live in a lot of the time in Ibiza in Spain. And there's a particular breed of dog called a Podenco, which is an Ibizan hound. And they're very badly treated. They're used as hunting dogs and then discarded at about the age of three. And I won't go into the details of how the farmers dispose of them. But anyway, you rescue them and get them to Germany or to England or you know, somewhere else that's where they can have forever good homes. So our love of dogs has kind of inspired us to gradually love all animals and to question the treatment of animals, particularly those intensively farmed um, land animals. And so for six and a bit years, I haven't eaten meat and Dafina hasn't eaten meat for, it's coming up for three years now. And we absolutely, you know, yesterday I went for a lunch with some relatives and they were all eating meat. And I, I, I feel a sort of sense of revulsion actually about it. It's pretty awful. Yeah. And um, I've been vegetarian all my life and, and about three years ago, I decided to go to go vegan. And I also feel the same, like, you know, also living you know, most of my life up to now consuming dairy is just as bad as actually eating meat in terms of the life cycle that the cattle need to go through. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, dairy cattle live, uh, I think it's three and a half to four years on average. They're, um, you know, they have a terrible time, as you well know, with their calves being um, ripped away from them, but constantly pregnant. Others get so heavy that sometimes their backs break. And if we're left out in a field, I think it's somewhere between 20 and 30 years. So it's a despicable industry. And actually, I would say that the dairy industry is the one that is most likely to be quickly disrupted. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give it more than 10 years before it's completely changed. You can see that with the momentum that we're having with plant-based alternative milks at the moment and with now the bigger companies like Beyond Meat just registering Beyond Milk and you know the processes that will be involved to replace casein and do more on the fermentation side, I think it's going to be really quick. 
so you're absolutely right, Anand. So 10 years ago, about half a percent of soya, oats, etc. Today, uh, the figures about 20% of the market, and the two biggest dairy producers in the US, Borden and Dean Foods, have gone bust in the last year or so. Um, and the whole business model, basically, of the dairy industry is being broken. Now, those alternative milks, such as oats and almonds and so forth, are not neither necessarily better for you or for the environment, um, but they are very popular. Now, when we get precision fermented milk products based on the way in casein, as you mentioned earlier, from Clara Foods, uh, no, Not Quo, and um, a legendary now called Formo uh, out of Germany and others, uh, I, I think that you know the dairy industry will be on its on its knees because it's the biggest environmental polluter. It has a cruel reputation. Our alternatives are are just so good that uh, so good for health and for the environment that they're just going to eat up market share. There's no objecting to them whatsoever unless you're a dairy farmer. Yes, for sure. And are you still pescatarian or have you gone completely into veganism now? Um, and if you are well, vegan, um, did, did that change when you watched Seaspiracy? Yeah, I did. We watched about half of Seaspiracy. We couldn't bear to watch the whole thing. We eat fish about once a week and reluctantly so. Um, I mean, Dafina had place for lunch yesterday. Um, I didn't have any uh, fish or, or meat. So I'm gradually weaning myself off fish. And of course, Blue Nalu, which is our fish company, should be on the market with its um, tuna and its mahi-mahi next year. So there's no need in, that, in those circumstances to eat any wild-caught or farmed fish from then on. You'll just eat the lab-grown stuff. But I have to admit, there's a, a sort of hypocritical aspect to me eating some fish. Um, occasionally yeah and there's also a new documentary that's come out called Finn it's available on Discovery Plus and the director is a director called Eli Roth and he normally makes scary films and um, he was saying this is basically the scariest film he's ever seen and growing up he used to love Jaws and and it's fascinating talking about shark finning in that documentary in, in more detail and you know, just how the process is to capture the, the sharks, but also what they do in terms of the process, because it has no nutritional value and they have to strip everything because it actually smells quite bad. And then they have to put loads of chemicals on it. And normally when they're drying it out, it's left in the gutter. So there's Sea Shepherd are, are doing some campaigns around that association, but also as a byproduct, the shark oil is used a lot in cosmetics and i just think it's you know has to stop otherwise you know we we definitely need these apex predators for the life chain in in our oceans and it's uh yeah it's terrible it is terrible it's a bit equivalent to uh us having our legs mandatorily cut off you know it's it's absolute i mean there's nothing that is positive about what they what they're doing um it's another cruel practice largely uh the far east uh, and, you know, we've the pandemic we're living in at the moment is because of agricultural malpractice in Asia, as have been all the pandemics um, in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, and this has just got to stop. I mean, there, there is there is no justification for it whatsoever. Um, and, you know, some people say, well, it's cultural, you know, eating sharks fins or it's but then, you know, it used to be cultural 
in the UK to burn witches at the stake doesn't mean it's a, it's it's cultural acceptable today. It's not, <laughs> and it should be the same with this barbaric practice. Yeah. So just wanted to move on to your book, um, so Moose Law, an investor's guide to the new agrarian revolution. And I was really happy actually. Uh, that the proceeds of the book are going to GFI, who are amazing and doing so much work in in our space across the world. So, yeah, it'd be great to give a short summary and what actually inspired you to write the book in such a way. Well, thanks for that. Um, Yes, the proceeds are going to the GFI, and I think we've got some actually already. I think we've got about £15,000 in the can from it already. Um, And so Bruce can look forward to that. But um, the, this is my seventh book. Um, and in previous books, I've, when I've got interested in a subject, I've written a book about it. It gives you two things, Anna. One is you can uh, meet people you otherwise wouldn't meet. So I interviewed 35 CEOs for this particular book, Moose Law, uh, during the lockdown, actually. And uh, the second is it orders your thoughts and gives you a, a, a quick education, really, in something that you may not be familiar with. And I'm, I'm not talking about you not being familiar with, but me personally not being familiar with. And um, so I, uh, I've done this now seven times, and uh, I'm actually going to be writing a children's book uh, version of Moose Law, and I'll get that done by the end of the year. That's so amazing. That's yeah. so oh well done. That's really good to hear. And I think we definitely need more children's books explaining what we need to do for kids to understand this more. And, and I think it would be great if you can also get it into the school curriculum in some ways and actually go out to schools and talk about it. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. I mean, I I, I just think that, you know, as they always say, youth is our future, but um, increasingly young people are aware of the environment, partly through the efforts of contemporaries like Greta Thunberg, but also because the, the blitzkrieg of uh, information that's coming their way about climate change. And secondly, younger people are increasingly aware of just the barbaric practices that are involved in raising the food that you and I, well, not you, because you've been vegetarian most of your life, um, have been you know, complicit in for the last whatever, number of decades, basically. So um, it's great. I, I, anyway, I've, I've never written a children's book before, and I'm I'm obviously I need an illustrator, so I'm working on getting an illustrator, but I'll get it done by the end of the year. So I'll send you a copy of that as well, Anna, and yeah. give it to your kids or to any kids that you know. I will, yeah, I'll give it to my kids. Responsive to. What age do you think it will be best for? I think 10 to 12. Okay, yeah, great. Um, so my daughter's 10, so I've got two Perfect. daughters. So yeah, so she'll, she'll be, be, she'll be a great age. First and... recipients. Great, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you want me to read a first draft of it you know happy to do that and, and give you some feedback oh that would be great that would be fantastic what's her name what's her name uh, her name's what's vidya her name? right vidya okay well she'll be she'll be uh, tasked with reading the first draft she might not like it that would be the terrible thing so. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll give you some good feedback on it for sure just wanted to go back to your book now so i think there were some stats in there that really resonated with me and i, I you're, you're definitely not against americans but there's a stat in there that says um, the average American would eat 21,000 animals. And I basically spoke to my daughter about this yesterday, and I said, look, how much do you think? What, what would be an average if you, if you were going to think? She was like, 500. I said, no. Uh, and then 1,000. 
uh, you know, no, it's not that. And then when I mentioned 21,000, she just couldn't believe it. And I was just thinking, if you're just standing as you are in your own garden and thinking all these animals are looking at you and you just can't actually picture 21,000 animals in your own life sort of dying because you've eaten them. And I was just thought, wow, that's such an amazing stat. And the other amazing stat was around um, one kilo of beef, for example, requires 15,000, over 15,000 litres of water. And also there's poultry, it's over 4,000. And I also asked my nephew about this. My nephew was like, what, a chicken would drink that much water? I was like, yeah, it's the whole process involved in it, yeah? So, I mean, those stats make you think about it and sort of the harm that you're doing and the wastage that there's going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just the chickens drinking the water. It's also the water that goes into creating the feed that they eat. Now, we have 17 rescue chickens at home who are very happily uh, sort of, you know, living out their, their lives, which hopefully will be very quite long. I mean, chickens, believe it or not, live 10 to 12 years. They don't have to die at 23 days, which is the average when they're uh, so-called harvested in one of these battery sort of operations. Yeah, um, unless you're a, but, a male you know, chick. They are big consumers. They give a lot of pain. Hmm? Yeah, unless, unless you're a male chick and, and you die in one day or you die in the first day. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's terrible, awful, you know. And so we're um, we we rescued some that were, you know, just wandering around. And uh, so now we have a complete menagerie. Um, and I'm sure you do as well. Do you have any animals at home? I don't. The thing is, I I, I really love uh, dogs. Um, so I end up taking my neighbours' dogs for walks because my missus isn't a fan of having in animals in the house. So unfortunately, uh, I don't. I would love to have uh, <laughs> love to have a dog, but. Yeah, so um, our neighbours get treated, put it that way. Okay, well, I'll send you some pictures of our dogs after this this show. So um, we're awesome. very, very keen on them. You know and- that company I was talking about earlier in San Francisco, that you can also send yeah. your pet DNA to the moon? Oh, right, okay. Well, <laughs> uh, hopefully my, my dogs or our dogs will live a lot, uh, quite a bit longer, so it won't be immediate. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know the the oldest living dog was a, a dog called Bramble, and he lived over twenty five years on pretty much a uh, vegan diet, actually, just on veggies. Um, yeah. So dogs, you know, dogs, dogs are, are not obligatory carnivores; they don't have to eat meat. Cats do, though, as you probably are aware, and that's why they chase mice and rats and things like that. Um, but dogs can very happily subsist on uh, vegan diets, and in fact, our dogs don't eat much meat very not very much yeah um uh yeah and they're quite happy and they're in great shape yeah and you cover that in your book with um you know pet food and uh there is a company that's just released the first um cell-based product um or cultured meat as as you can also call it for cat food called because animals so and they've reproduced uh, mouse food in inside their products so that's really interesting you know the pet food market is one that really interests us um it's in the u.s pet foods are about 75 billion dollars a year of sales and it's a fast growing market because you know people love their pets and they want them to eat more healthily because if you eat pedigree chum all day long, it's a bit like eating McDonald's all day long. You know, your life expectancy will be reduced. So you need to eat 
um, you know, dogs need to eat healthier. And so doing something in that market relatively soon. Um, I think the dog food market's much bigger than the cat food market. And so that's the, that's the area that we're con- concentrating on. Yeah. And I speak to Ryan Bethencourt quite a lot and, and we're co-investors in some companies. So yeah, uh, I know the market well, and I think that it's, uh, it will be definitely the next wave of innovations coming down the road and we're going to see a lot more companies entering the space so yeah it's an exciting one to be and you know if you look at the also like the quality of meat that ends up in dog food it's like not great is it it's like you know all the offcuts that humans don't want to eat pretty much yeah but it's not just the offcuts it's all the head the tongue all that sort of stuff it's pretty gross actually but the good good thing about in cell culture you know one of the big challenges is to make it look like what you might call the real thing Pet food tastes good. They don't care. Yeah, for sure. When you spoke about your book and, you know, you managed to speak to so many people, I actually feel the same. So now that I've done so many episodes of this show, I'm always learning something new. So it's great to speak to these founders and people like yourself. So tell me about the journey you took. So you did this really great road trip, mainly in the the US, right, where you went to interview all these founders. No, that was the previous book. That was Juvenescence. Oh, that was Juvenescence. Okay. On this one was because of the pandemic. So I just did phone call interviews with them during the lockdown period um, from our house in the Isle of Man, actually. And, um, you know, it's not the same thing as doing the drive around the US I did for Juvenescence. I'm sure that we're all hoping to be able to travel, and particularly to the United States. I mean, uh, you know, I haven't... I've, we haven't been to the States for a couple of years and that's where a lot of our businesses that we invest in are. So we haven't participated in the taste testing that's going on for some of the companies. We haven't been able to interview the management in a face-to-face way. It's pretty awful, but we're coming to the end of it now. Yeah, hopefully uh, there's definitely going to be the the travel industry picking up also from a sector point of view. And I think there's obviously pent-up demand, isn't there? Like People have saved money and they, they also from, from a business point of view, but also from a vacation point of view, they, they need to get back out there. With ergonomics now, you know, you have invested in, in various uh, companies, including Blue Nalu that you mentioned. Um, and yeah, they have a very strong management team. Which other companies are high up on your list in terms of ones that you have invested in? Yeah, it's a great question. So Agronomics is about $300 million now in size and just recently raised $100 million of new money. Um, and uh, we hope to grow it further uh, as time goes on, but no immediate plans for that. The Blue Nalu, you right, quite rightly mentioned, has got a veteran team. It's in an area which we like because um, uh, the fish... I mean, everyone knows that fish are contaminated with microplastics and toxins, mercury, et cetera, uh, antibiotics. And so it's, in a way, it's an easier sell. Also, fish is only regulated in the US by the not the FDA and the USDA, so it makes it easier for a regulatory pathway. And they already have the product. So we like that one a lot. But in terms of other ones, we like Vitro Labs. I don't know if you know that one, Anant. That's a yeah. California company that um, is producing leather and unlike, you know, pineapple leather or bamboo leather or any of that sort of stuff, it's, it's leather um, because it comes from the stem cells of the car leather and it's not being slaughtered, of course. And um, it produced in any size at all because at the moment, the bit of leather that people use is dictated by the size of the animal. This can be produced in any size at all. It also does, comes out of the lab with no hair on it. 
So the tanning process is a lot less destructive. They're already in commercial contracts, so you don't eat leather. So obviously they don't need to go through a regulatory process to get it onto the market. And uh, the big fashion houses are already buying this stuff. So I like that one. Uh, we like um, uh, Meatable from Holland, which is uh, producing a variety of meats, uh, focusing to begin with on pork, um, which is a big market obviously in Europe and in uh, China. And uh, the reason we like them is because they're using a, an induced pluripotent stem cell that has a, a stability to it that most of the IPSCs don't. So that the you don't need to keep on going back to animals to take uh, stem cell samples. So basically, it's an immortalized line, and we think very highly of the technology. We think highly of the management. And then a last one, which is Solar Foods, based in Finland, which is using hygienotrophs and plus uh, renewable and cheap energy uh, to produce what is effectively like a soya protein um, in a continuous process. Uh, with no environmental destruction, no chopping down the Amazon rainforest to, to produce soybeans. And that's interesting because that uh, protein can be used in the media or the feedstock for cell agriculture products. And it also can be used in bread, uh, pasta, uh, that sort of stuff to produce food. And we like it particularly for the Middle East because there's lots of solar radiation, therefore cheap energy to to create this hydrolysis that's required to produce the protein. That sounds really amazing, actually. I uh, should get them on the show. Yeah, you should. Very Finnish, so they're very matter-of-fact, but uh, it's a very good company. And again, you know, they're producing it. It's not like it's... Uh, none of this stuff is science fiction. It's here and now, which is terrific. In other words, you know, we're not going to be waiting a long time to get this. In my main business, biotech, you could be waiting 10 years market, and I think within two years. Yeah. Is there any other companies that you would like to invest in, but you haven't managed to do so yet? Yeah, Geltor, which is producing collagen in a lab. And we think that's a very interesting market. And we didn't have uh, the funding to do that one when uh, it did its last round, where it raised $90 million. And the other one we really like is Clara Foods, which is um, doing a round at the moment. I think it was heavily oversubscribed, and we're hoping to get some of that. Clara Foods is obviously in the dairy side of the equation, and we think it's a very good company. Yeah, Arturo is great. He, he's come on the show before. and um, I interviewed Arturo for the book as well. Oh, awesome. I quite like what Gelto is doing on the collagen front. And there's other startups entering this space. And I think that has so many uses, especially obviously for the cosmetics industry, but also for, for biotech, right, as, as, a, as a growth uh, starting medium as well. Yeah, and for food. You know, gelatin is used in many, many foods. It's all bovine. And so it'd be great to replace that. Yeah. So moving on to, I guess, more on the investment side, you know, there's a lot of funds that have been scrutinized for not doing enough to battle against um, climate change. For example, BlackRock came under pressure. And meanwhile, you know, Goldman Sachs just announced that they're going to be acquiring a Netherlands-based, mainly ESG fund for $1.6 billion. Um, What's your opinion on especially the large funds that aren't doing enough to take serious action, potentially even removing companies that are not doing enough to fight climate change? Yeah, well, I think that we all need to, I mean, we're all savers. We all got pension funds. We need to represent 
ourselves as individuals and as pots of money to ensure that this process is accelerated. So obviously there is a, a focus on the oil and gas and Shell, as you know, recently in Holland, there was a vote of the shareholders forcing them to divest some of their assets. I don't think necessarily the divestment is such a good idea because it just ends up in someone else's hands and that creates the same amount of carbon emission. But in our industry, in the food industry, um, we can make a difference. You know, the big companies like Tyson, Cargill, and JBS, or even our big food companies, Unilever, Nestle here in Europe, should be encouraged by investors of all types to accelerate the process of developing the alternative proteins that you so eloquently, you know, describe and talk about on a regular basis. And we all need to do that. So, I mean, agronomics is 100% an ESG uh, fund. It won't invest in anything that involves animal cruelty. In fact, this whole light motif is to re remove animal cruelty from the food supply. We, we need more funds. I mean, we're just a drop in the ocean, $300 million, but some of these companies and funds are billions, if not trillions of dollars, and we need them to do the same thing. Right. So, so everything that we can do, we should. Yeah, for sure. And what's the best way, would you say, to educate these large institutions and pension funds to make sure that the money is being allocated in the right way and they're actually putting more money into the space, not just small token amounts? Yeah, I think it's in their own self-interest, actually, because ultimately consumers will want to buy the good stuff and not the environmentally destructive and cruel stuff. Um, but I think that, you know, getting... Uh, people to listen to your show as an example who are in positions of power would be really useful. Getting people to read books like Moose Law would be really useful. Getting Good Food Institute to go around and talk to some of these companies would be very useful. And actually, I, I think that, you know, you put into my mind a very good idea, which is that we should establish um, some sort of industry association in the UK. There is a sort of industry association in the US but I think we should do a UK one. And maybe you and I can be part of that to, to kick it off. Because we've yeah. got one for the longevity industry, which is now uh, sort of taking off. Why don't we do it for the UK and uh, try and encourage our government ministers to listen to what we have to say and our big companies to listen to what we have to say and to take it seriously and do something about it? There's no doubt that it's not just greenwashing. This would be good for their business model as well. Oh, completely. Yeah. And I actually interviewed the professor of climatology from UCL London. And I asked him, you know, what should we all be doing? And he, the, the first thing was actually just talk about it more, just get the message out there. And there's stuff that we can do as individuals, stuff that we can do as companies, stuff that we need to lobby the governments to do. So yeah, I'll be really interested to talk to you more about that, see what we can produce here, especially in the UK. Yeah, I like that, Anant. And, you know, some people say, oh, it's all wokery and, you know, that sort of stuff. This is not wokery. This is uh, this has got to happen. I mean, this is not some sort of um, left or right project. This is a project that is necessary for all of us on the planet, as you well know. Um, so uh, this shouldn't be politicized. This should be made a matter of national priority. Yeah. And... If we think about young people, right, uh, the, the millennials and the Gen Zs, they're, they're very conscious, especially about where they're investing. They want to invest in 
environmentally sustainable companies um, and it's a key factor for them. What is your opinion on the current list? I sent you a list of, you know, current top stocks that the millennials and, and Gen Zs are buying. Uh, if you like, I'll, I'll display it afterwards on the screen. But yeah, I've got, so it, I've got, got it here. I've, I've okay, got it great. here. Yeah. It's interesting because um, I would say absolutely none of those stocks has any relationship, maybe with the exception of Tesla, to climate change or to you know the Nestle Chinese electric vehicle company. Yeah. So most of them are let, just. Let's, yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, I I invested in uh, Neo early on actually, uh, so that's that's done quite well. But let, let's talk about Tesla. You have uh, previously said that you shorted them, and uh, it'll be great to get your opinion now. What you think? And last week they announced the AI Day, and I must say I'm, I was quite impressed in terms of their advancements that they've made. And you may think that they're just an electric car company, or most people do, um, but I think in terms of the processing power that they now have with their dojo uh, supercomputer, the fact that they can use AI to make humanoid robots from next year using the same technology, which is basically a robot car, but also like you could see them as a, a future energy company. But yeah, it'd be great to get your thoughts on, on Tesla. Yeah, well, I, look, I think that you know, there's nothing wrong with Tesla as a concept or a company. The, my issue is, as a fund manager by background, is the valuation. And uh, because the value of any company is the future, the discounted level of dividends in the future and its, subs and its terminal worth. And Tesla's too high, in my opinion. And I've been shorting it. I was a bit premature, but generally speaking, we've made a bit of money on shorting Tesla. As you know, it's gone down about 30% this year. Um, and it also has two characteristics that I think, as investors, we should take into account. One is that, yes, it's more than a car company, it's a software company and so forth, but um, the, it's not like Facebook or Google, which have no manufacturing costs. Tesla has to make the cars that trundle out of its showrooms and make the storage units that it sells, and it has to make the panels that Solar City uses, it's, and, and it'll have to make the robots. That all costs money. It's a physical manufacturing business, and the margins on that are always going to be less than the margins on a pure software business. And then the second thing that I think is really important is that known in the world. I mean, you talked about Neo, and well done you getting into that. But you know, General Motors, uh, Ford, BMW, Volkswagen, Jaguar—they're all catching up, and uh, so it's going to be a competitive market. So my general view is. Um, uh, I would be cautious on Tesla, but the idea of Tesla and all the stuff, the good stuff it's doing is fantastic. Yeah, for sure. And I'm also quite interested in hydrogen as an alternative, um, especially with the bigger vehicles, lorries and uh, buses in terms of just, you know, obviously there's the engineering side and, you know, getting the fuel over, but uh, in terms of just having natural water vapor coming out, which is quite amazing. So I'm quite uh, excited about that long-term potential as well. I totally agree. And actually don't forget ships when it comes to hydrogen as well, which are big polluters. Um, and hydrogen makes a lot of sense in the, in the marine fleet. Um, uh, you know, hydrogen's intense, energy intensity is three times that of um, gasoline. So it, it makes a lot of sense. The, the problem is that in closing the fuel, as you say, 
in itself can add weight to the vehicle, but on a ship, it doesn't make that much difference. So I think ships may just be the first and, and buses because they're large as well. Um, but I love the idea of hydrogen. I think it's fantastic. And there's no emission, genuinely no emission. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought about the ships, actually. Um, that's a good point. Um, so also in the news, there's a, a new bank, um, a sustainable bank called Aspiration. And it's been backed by Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, the singer Drake, uh, Robert Downing Jr., um, which is also going public via a, a SPAC this year. And it offers like services around buying offsets when you buy a car, you know, buying car fuel or gas and using the money that you've got to round up purchases to help plant trees. And uh, there's talk that it will be valued around uh, 2.3 billion. Uh, and I know you're very interested in, in bank stocks and then making a comeback, obviously, and like Lloyd's, for example, here in the UK. But it, what do you think about these new breed of, uh, of banks coming on, um, especially the ones with sustainability at its heart? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's a great idea. I, I think that hopefully that it'll get off the ground, although you can have a noble aspiration and it's great for the world and so forth. Um, if the valuation is wrong, you could be waiting a long time to make a return on your money. And, you know, so uh, I would be very cautious about the uh, valuation on some of these things at the moment. Um, that doesn't mean to say that their underlying motives and business models aren't good. It's just, you know, again, get back to the value of a company is the future dividends and its terminal value. And it just may be too high. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, Doing a SPAC is good for the the founders, right, uh, of the company. But yeah, in terms of like yeah, getting it uh, immediately to, to market in, in such a short space time. But yeah, I guess investors also need to, to look at whether it's, if it's the right value when it comes into the market. Yeah. And, and that's why we're, we were talking about doing a SPAC for our company, Juvenescence, which is a longevity focused business. Um, but we're going to do a conventional listing in the UK, and oh, okay. hopefully by the end of this year. So, um, uh, you know, we're, we're working full tilt on that at the moment. Uh, awesome. Uh, yeah. So in terms of uh, longevity with uh, Juvenescence, you're, you're really interested in this space. And what can we learn from Blue Zones, especially in increasing our longevity? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, basically... Uh, people in blue zones tend to live Spartan and happy lives. And the Spartan bit is basically they don't do anything to excess. You, typically, they do manual work, so out in the fields, uh, you know, carpentry, whatever, which most people can't do. And then in terms of happiness, they have very strong community bonds. And those appear to be the two defining characteristics of people in blue zones. But let's be clear about it, that what we're doing at Juvenescence is trying to do more than just encouraging people to live healthy uh, and happy lives. We're trying to use fundamental biology to extend the period of healthy life and then ultimately to add years of healthy life. And that means examining the fundamental pathways that cause us to age and to lose homeostasis and you know, balance so that by the age of 70 or 80, we're in like a terminal decline. And so we're using regenerative medicine and pharmacology to try and do that. Now, there's evidence that that is possible. Um, 
some mammalian species can have their lives extended and their health span extended, that's the period of healthy life, by using drugs like rapamycin or senolytic drugs which remove senescent cells or even metformin, which is a drug widely used by diabetics. And then in regenerative medicine, it's possible now to regrow organs in the body as opposed to growing them outside the body or making artificial organs. Um, and so we're at the very beginning of this incredible movement to extend human lifespan beyond the sort of levels that people in the blue zone live at, which would be typically in their 90s, and if they're lucky to get you know, over to 100. Um, and I can confidently forecast, at least I think I can forecast that there's a very good chance that you and I uh, could benefit from some of these therapies and that we might live as a matter of routine to over 100 years old in a fairly healthy condition. And that that period, the drugs coming into the market and so forth will be the next 20 to 25 years. So not very far to go, basically, for us to benefit from these drugs and therapies. Yeah. And one of the companies that you have invested in is uh, Lead Genesis which is developing an approach to combat liver failure by effectively growing a new mini um, liver in your lymph nodes, um, which sounds amazing. Yeah, it is. And the FDA likes it, which are the Food and Drug Administration in the US, which regulates drugs and some foods. And um, the, uh, they are allowing us to proceed with a phase two trial, which means it's going into sick patients almost around now actually. And um, so what it does is, as you rightly point out, Anant, it takes uh, hepatocyte cells, which are liver cells, seeds them into lymph nodes. And we have hundreds of lymph nodes in our body, but typically lymph nodes that are adjacent to a fading liver. There's a, plenty of people with fading livers, not all of them who are getting them because they're drinking, but because of hepatitis or liver cancer or just general bad luck. And then um, in about a year, uh, a new liver uh, grows and uh, takes over from the fading liver. Now, the, the, the great thing about this is that this is a platform technology. So um, they're already in animal studies for things like the thymus, which sits about here and, and is responsible for your immune system. And it shrinks to almost nothing when you're old. So you can't produce T cells, which are that's where the word comes from, thymus cells. Um, and T cells are vital to your immune system, which is why so many older people get caught by COVID rather than younger people, because they're not producing T cells. Um, and so if you can regrow the thymus, which is what we're trying to do, then that's absolutely amazing. But ultimately mm. it could be the pancreas, it could be the kidneys, uh, it could be really any organ in the body so it's it's super exciting and uh, we'll know within a year or so whether this works in humans we know that it works already in um, mammalian models and very well um, with zero failures uh, we just have to see if it works in humans there's no reason to suppose it won't yeah so you think it could come to market especially with the the liver side in, in about a year is is that what you're uh, uh, no we'll know we'll have a readout um, of the trials, uh, when, when it comes to market, can't determine that. But um, if it works in a phase two trial, normally it goes into a phase three trial, 
but it could be that the FDA just says, right, this is working for sick patients who have you know, failing livers, terminal liver failure, maybe we just do it for them. But we just don't know the way it's gonna work out. But I'm keeping my fingers crossed and praying that it does work because there's so many people. I mean, I think in the US and Europe combined, there are 7.2 million people currently who have terminal liver failure and they will not live much more than one or two years. And there's nothing that can be done about it unless they get a liver transplant. Now a liver transplant is seven or $800,000, 15 hour operation, and you go on to really heavy immunosuppressant drugs for the rest of your life. And there just aren't a fraction of the number of livers are needed out there to be transplanted. Um, and this is an outpatient procedure. So you go in and you're out within half an hour. It's a 20 minute uh, non-general anesthetic procedure. Um, and uh, it costs about $100,000. So it's a fraction of the price of the liver transplant. How good is that? Yeah, sounds sounds great, especially if, uh, you know, obviously you've got your insurance to pay for that, uh, for the people who are, you know, maybe not be able to afford that. But yeah, I think it's it's just the technology is amazing in order to do yeah. that. You know, the liver is is an organ that you can slice and part of it will regrow, right? And it's like a good good first one to, to tackle, but I'm quite excited about the immunity side, which is uh, really amazing. Um, so I think... Um, when you've been developing this product, um, uh, I think you've been testing on, um, uh, you know, uh, animals um, like, uh, is it is it mice and, and pigs? But um, I could see, you know, did you test on those animals because they also had like liver problems? Or is there a way you can go without testing on, on those animals? And, and, you know, is, is that possible? Yeah, well, it's not me that's doing the testing, all right? Yes, so of course. We're, we're yeah. just shareholders in Ligenesis, but I, I yes. absolutely understand your question. And the answer is no. And the amount of animal testing that's done in the pharmaceutical or biotech industry is far too much. Um, so along comes AI, which can predict the outcome of trials or use former trials to predict the outcome of current trials. Um, and also biomarkers which can show uh, through blood samples whether something's working or not without the need for uh, animals. And the answer is on the mice and the pigs is that they are induced into liver injury um, uh, because those animals don't get the type of liver injury that humans do naturally because they're not... Um, you know, not doing bad stuff, basically, like, like human beings do. Um, and they're not getting the same diseases. So they are induced and then uh, they get what's called um, sacrifice, which means that they're slaughtered at the end of the trial. None of that I like. Um, and so again, it's an, a hypocritical thing that, uh, that uh, one of our companies or one of our investments is doing. But I, I have words about this with the the company on a regular basis because the sooner we can move to biomarkers and AI predictions and the sooner the FDA accepts those predictions then the less suffering animals will have in terms of being uh, victims for uh, as sort of guinea pigs for trials it's terrible really terrible but the, there's one area which I think already the animals are no longer being used I think almost universally and that's in cosmetic testing um, 
because there's so much of consumer backlash about that. Again, that's fundamentally wrong. Absolutely yeah. wrong. Yeah. So, you know, animal testing is at the moment, and particularly with mice, is the universal way of testing drugs and therapies. Um, and just because mice are small and a lower order of animal species than, you know, the ones that we're familiar with, like the dogs and the horses and cats and so forth, doesn't mean they don't have rights as well. So there's a big ethical dilemma there and we need to move quickly to try and eradicate it. It's a very good question. Yeah, I'd love to see more startups, especially on the AI side, uh, that are able to, to come to market with this and, um, you know, eradicate it as soon as we can. And um, yeah, it's good to hear that there's developments in that area to, to, to do that. Um, with uh, Juvenescence, um, your first product was uh, is um, a metabolic switch ketone. Is that yep. basically to put your body into ketosis in order to uh, address fat loss, for example, which most people are going into taking these uh, keto diets because of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is absolutely the, um, the main reason people take uh, ketone esters. This is a very potent one. It's much, much uh, less expensive than the ones that athletes and uh, the kind of typical, very narrow audience for ketone esters use. Um, it's now being made into a powder. The powder will be out in the relatively near future, apart from just the shot drink, uh, and it will be relatively inexpensive. Um, it comes out of the Buck Institute in California, which is the world's leading anti-aging research institute, and it's but it's not just about weight loss, it's about cardio protection and uh, also uh, neuro protection. And they, they've basically proved that, that those two are a component of this. Um, and I can't wait to get my hands on it. We can't get it in Europe at the moment, it's just in the United States. So as soon as it's available, I'll be drinking it with my orange juice every morning. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it'd be great to, um, I think there's a way in the product. So it'd be great to talk to one of the companies that you've invested in to see if they can switch that out from a B2B ingredients point of view as well. Well, or, or use precision fermentation way. Correct. You know, which, yeah, uh, which, yeah. Uh, absolutely. It's a very good point. And uh, I need to bring it up with them. You've, you've opened my eyes to a few things today, but, you know, because... Uh, it's difficult to be in the biotech industry and not to do things that are against the ethos that you and I are espousing, um, or that you know Moose Law and uh, Plant CEO is doing. And um, so we need to we need to change our behaviours and do it quickly. Yeah, for sure. And and I'm very conscious about you know where I invest and you know who I want to be be working with and you know just just to get the message out. But I see that you also need to operate in that environment in order for them to take action, right? So you need to have those conversations to get it done. And uh, yeah, it's def definitely everything that we should be doing in the right way. So just in general, especially, you know, with, with COVID, where do you actually see the, the world economy going? Do you see a recession looming? And I know there's, you know, countries printing money, you know, like uh, in the US. Uh, you know, in terms of just to keep it, keep everything going, including also the European bank. Um, but it'd be great to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, look, we had a, 
a deep uh, recession around the world in March of last year. We've had a very, very quick bounce back, partly because of all the money printing that you allude to, um, and partly because this was an, uh, an artificial recession. It was self-induced, um, and it wasn't a natural business cycle. Um, the, the problem is now that so much money is being printed that we're getting inflationary pressure. So if I had to bet, I would say that there'll be some modest tightening. Um, that will put pressure on stock markets, probably. Um, but ultimately, our big, our big problem is going to be inflation. And already, you know, in the UK, you had wage growth of 8.5% last quarter. Um, in the US, you're getting pretty high inflation numbers. In China, you're getting quite high inflation numbers. Uh, there's a shortage of staff in all developed countries in very in skilled areas. Um, and that is going to put price pressure. And so uh, from my own point of view, I think that you know most investors should focus on something that's going to protect them against inflation. Gold springs to mind, silver springs to mind. Mm. Um, but you know, just be wary of inflation because none of us, I mean, even myself, uh, I just kind of started in the investment world when inflation was peaking and then it's been downhill ever since. Uh, but we now might be in an upswing and inflation is a very pernicious thing. You know, if you, if you get inflation of three or 4% a year and your investment returns are only 2% a year, you're going to be losing one or 2% of your capital values every year. And over time, as you, as, especially as people get older, it means that their savings will not be worth what they hoped for. Um, so the other thing you can do is to look at what you do, which is to change the planet from a food point of view. Uh, and make some invest smart investments in that area because surely, I mean, everyone knows about electric vehicles. Everyone knows about uh, climate change. Everyone knows about, you know, things like cannabis, which were a big thing in the market a couple of years ago. Everyone knows about lithium, but how many people know about what we're doing? Not many. Yeah, totally. So maybe yeah. make investments in that area and, and you know, not only do you help the world by making those investments, but you protect your portfolio against inflation and other bad things. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I'm also excited about the potential that psilocybin can do in the future to treat um, illnesses like mental health issues. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of like a nascent market of where uh, the cannabis market was uh, 10 years ago at the moment. Yeah, no, I agree. We're, we're the seed investors in Beckley SciTech, which is a British company. Um, and uh, it's working with psilocybin and ketamine um, uh, for PTSD, uh, ultra-rare depressions that you know, are intractable, can't be cured with uh, conventional therapies. Um, and I think it's going to be a very big industry. I completely agree with you. Um, it's got to get rid of its image, which is, of you know, 60s psychedelics, you totally. know, people jumping out of windows and all that sort of stuff. But, but it, it has incredible medical validity. And I'm, I'm very honored to have been uh, an early investor in that. Yeah, that's really good news. Um, so, yeah, last question. Um, do you still have your pub in London? I don't. Um, I closed it before the, uh, well, I think we might still be renting it, the space, but we closed down the, uh, it, it turned from being a pub into a restaurant. And, uh, you know, although I've got some money, um, 
I don't have enough money, well, I do, but I don't want to stand on the street and basically hand out free food to the residents of Notting Hill. So in the last year before we closed it, it lost 700,000 pounds. This is a restaurant, uh, which is basically what I was doing, handing out free food. And uh, so we just closed it. So I don't have it anymore, but I do like pubs. I like pubs. Yeah, so we, we should definitely go to a pub one day and talk Let's about all this. Let's do it, Anna. Let's do it. I love pubs. I think it's one of the best features of British life. And uh, <laughs> it was certainly something that we missed in the lockdown. So. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And it's it's not a bad investment to make now that they're, they're making a comeback to some degree as well. Yeah, so I bought some shares in Marston's, which is a pub-owning company um, and a brewer. Uh, they got 1,400 pubs, so I bought shares in that. It's a lot easier than running a pub. Yeah, yeah, just um, yeah. On 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 the brewing side, just just as well as another point for you to discuss with them is just to make sure. I'm not sure if they do or not. Um, not to use fish gills in in the beer the beer process. Yeah, I will check. I will check with them, <laughs> um, and I promise to get back to you on that. But uh, you know, it's really good that you're taking such an interest in the not just the. The, the the big picture but also the individual actions of companies which go contrary to what we're talking about and to try and change that because none none of what is being done for instance with animal testing or fish gills is necessary there are alternatives that are in the works or can be engineered to be used and so it's really good that you upgrade people for doing that. I think it's a very good thing. Thank you so much. And yeah, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, you've this got is. so many things going on and uh, yeah, really appreciate the work that you're doing obviously on this book, but also the investments that you've made yourself and your personal commitment uh, to the animals and, and the environment. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, meet you up for a drink soon then. I will. And thank you very much. Adios. Take care. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.